This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends. <laughs> Did you say it? <laughs> Welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. Right now, it's uh, likely the time that you're seeing a bounty of really good stuff coming out of your garden, especially if you're in a climate like mine, where the summer heat is maybe starting to wane just a little bit. This usually signals to my garden, at least, that it's time to make one last hard push to reproduce. So the tomatoes and the peppers and the other summer plants just start to push out all kinds of fruit. This is also the time when any later planted warm weather crops will start to put on their fruit. So this year I planted my Amish paste tomatoes later than I normally do. I actually didn't plant them until uh, the end of June or beginning of July. And I did this purposefully in order to delay the onset of fruits until I would be more prepared to handle preserving. That's not to say that there haven't been periods over the gardening season where I've been a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of produce coming into the house. And my go-to method for preserving during the hottest and busiest time of the gardening season is freezing. This is also a really good way to preserve a bounty that you might find unexpectedly at the farmer's market. And then maybe you don't have your canning game together just yet, but you find somebody's got a bushel of green beans and you just have to have them. Freezing is like the entry-level way to preserving your harvest because it's the easiest. It can be done in very small batches, and it doesn't require anything in the way of special equipment. Now, sure, there are fun gadgets that you can buy, and I'm totally a gadget girl, but they might make your life easier, and they may help keep your fruits and veggies fresher for longer in the freezer, but really, most everything that you need to get started in freezing your garden goodness is already in your kitchen. There are pros and cons to every preservation method, and freezing is no exception. But if you need a way to put something up quickly and easily, you really can't go wrong here. Today, we'll review the basics of freezing, what you'll need to freeze produce successfully, the reason behind blanching, and which veggies can maybe skip that hot water bath, and more. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. Okay, so if you're hearing some background noise, it is storming like the dickens right now. This kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I was supposed to be out planting Napa cabbage route now, <laughs> and there was nothing on the radar, and then all of a sudden it got really, really dark, and then the thunder moved in, and now it is downpouring. 
So um, I guess I'm going to be flexible with my planting, <laughs> which brings me to the DRL. What am I doing? We are pushing to get the last of the fall veggies planted and starting seeds for our crops that we overwinter. Yeah, this is just a perfect example of needing to be flexible in your garden plan. You know me. I'm a planning girl. I'm always planning my garden. I'm helping clients plan their gardens. But there is something to be said for being flexible. I mean, we are working with Mother Nature, and she's not always predictable. And our summer here has been super hot, and it's been hotter for longer than it normally is. And we've just now started to get those overnight cool temperatures. And so we've had to adjust our game plan. You know, I'm only getting to plant for a couple of hours late in the evening when the heat of the day has sort of stopped. Um, because it's just too hot during the day for those brand new baby plants to be out there, no matter how well they've been hardened off. So um, what I'm kind of hoping, though, is that with these warmer temperatures, maybe our first frost date will be pushed out a little bit so that even the stuff that goes in late will totally have a chance to mature. So we'll see. Um, what am I reading? Well, <laughs> believe it or not, we left the house last weekend to go camping. And I left the house without a single bit of reading material. I didn't grab my Kindle. I left the stack of books sitting on my bedside table. I couldn't believe it. I had all this time to just be hanging out in the hammock and reading, and I didn't have any books with me. Um, and plus, we didn't even have enough signal for me to be able to download something to my phone, which I don't really like reading on my phone anyway. It's just the screen's too small. So um, what I did end up reading was back issues of Coffee or Die magazine, <laughs> um, which I hadn't read any of the issues, so it was perfectly fine with me. It was actually very intriguing. Coffee or Die magazine is put out by Black Rifle Coffee. Of course, they're my favorite coffee company. And it's a magazine that is kind of all about first responders and military and their stories and what they've gone through um, and a lot of other different sort of interesting information and looking at war correspondents and what their jobs are like. It, so it's actually a really good magazine. Like I said, it's put out by Black Rifle Coffee. Um, and if you want to try out Black Rifle Coffee, you can use the link in the show notes to get 20% off your Coffee Club subscription. So check the show notes for that. And then what am I listening to? I'm trying to kind of find some new podcasts to listen to. Some of the ones that I normally listen to are on hiatus um, for a little bit. And so I've just kind of been exploring maybe business podcasts or whatever. And I came across the Freelance Fairy Tales podcast <laughs> with Alex Fasulo. Um, if you're a freelance writer or a graphic designer or consultant or you have any kind of a side hustle working for yourself... She is a young freelancer who talks about how she got to where she is using sites like Fiverr. Um, she's straightforward about her opinions and the struggle of being a woman entrepreneur and being a high-earning 20-something. It's one of those podcasts where I listen to it when I don't have the attention span to pay super close attention, so I can glean what I can from it, and then the rest is just kind of background noise. So I think she's one of those people that you either love or you just don't care for. I'm enjoying listening to it. So I will link to the Freelance Fair Tales podcast in the show notes. The question of the week comes in an email from Deanna. Uh, Deanna is a new listener to the podcast, thanks to her friend Chris, who I also know. Thank you both for listening, and thank you, Chris, for sharing the podcast with a friend. 
Deanna says, we moved out of the city and now have plenty of space for a garden. However, the acreage we bought has been row cropped for years upon years. After listening to your podcast, I bought a soil test kit and the results were not good. The soil is totally depleted of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. It is slightly acidic at about 6.5 if I read the card correctly. I currently have black plastic covering the area I want to use next spring for my garden to kill the weeds. Once the black plastic is removed, what do we do to have something growing next spring? I have started a compost bin but will not have any compost of my own until spring. I really enjoy listening to your podcast on my drive into work and look forward to the next episode as soon as I am done with the one I'm listening to. Thank you, Deanna. I'm glad that you're enjoying this. And I did already email Deanna back and we're having a little bit of correspondence, but I chose this question this week because it goes right along with a garden consultation that I did a few weeks ago. Shout out to Julie if you're listening. And Julie was basically facing the same thing. She had moved out to a rural area, had a much larger place to be able to garden, and I had recommended to Julie that she use black plastic or a heavy tarp to kill all of the weeds and to start prepping her new garden space for the spring. Now, this method is called occultation. Um, This is basically you're just cutting the soil off from the sunlight. So using a black plastic sheet or a tarp warms the soil and it encourages those weed seeds to sprout but with no light coming through they can't continue to grow and they eventually die generally when using this method you want two or three months of very warm weather for this to work well now if the temperatures are a little bit on the cooler side then just leave it on a little bit longer but then either way if you're prepping a bed for the spring you want to remove the tarp or the black plastic in the very late fall to start prepping for the bed So once you feel like the area has been properly killed off, I recommend adding a two to three inch layer of purchased compost right on top. Now, if you're local, we get ours through Missouri Organic, but you can use, you know, whoever you have locally to you, have it trucked in, depending on the size of the garden, you can use a truck or you can, you know, bring in bags of it. You just don't want to till the soil before you add the compost. You do not want to turn that soil over and expose any weed seeds that are below the surface that weren't killed off by the tarp. So then topping it with a deep layer of compost is going to do a couple of things for you. First, it's going to mulch the area where you just killed off all the weeds, and that's going to help prevent any weeds from popping up. Second, it's going to give that compost the entire winter to be inoculated by the microbes coming up from your soil. Remember, we've talked before about how commercial compost is not bioactively alive when you get it. So fall is the best time to do this. Putting the compost down, having it directly in contact with the soil is going to make that compost come more alive and allow those microbes to move those nutrients from the compost back down into your soil. So you get this dual effect of adding nutrients to the soil, but then also improving the soil organic matter while also excluding the wheat. So let the compost sit there and do its thing over the entire winter. Having it in place during the off season is gonna help improve the soil texture by trapping in the moisture. And so hopefully in the spring, when you pull that compost back, you're not gonna have to worry about tilling the soil. Now, this is gonna depend on your soil texture. Out here, we do have a lot of heavy clay, and so that may not be enough. You'll know when you pull back that mulch layer in the early spring, you'll be able to tell whether or not there's been a difference made in the soil texture. So you may still need to till. 
Either way, do another soil test as the soil starts to warm up. This is where you're going to see where your nutrients are sitting at that stage. It's very possible, especially in Deanna's case, with the soil being this depleted, that she's going to have to probably do some amending anyway. She's probably going to have to use a plant food of some sort. But the biological life will have started to return, and that is going to make a huge difference. So if the soil is still depleted, then you're likely going to have to continue to feed the soil throughout the spring. I always recommend in this instance a product that is naturally derived but also has microbes. Now, we talked with Lauren, the owner of Elm Dirt, just a couple of episodes ago. We've been using their plant juice and their bloom juice here locally with amazing results in both our greenhouse and in our raised beds. And so if you go to the link in the show notes, you can use code JUSTGROW for a free bottle of bloom juice when you place any order. They do ship all over the country. But any plant food that has beneficial microbes is going to be good to use. The idea here is that you want to feed the soil. You don't necessarily want to be feeding the plants. Now, the good news for Deanna is that Her soil pH is okay for most garden veggies. Most garden vegetables like the soil to be a little bit slightly on the acidic side, and that's fine. Most commercial compost that you bring in, a lot of the time is more on an alkaline level, unless the composter is using a lot of animal manure. So you always want to make sure that you ask for an analysis if you are buying in bulk when you buy your compost. If you buy it in bags, you can actually use your soil test kit to test the compost pH and see if it is more alkaline. If that's the case, in this instance, it's going to help. The compost is also still going to be breaking down. So you just want to let it do its work over the winter and then again, check again in the spring. If it's still too acidic, then Deanna can go ahead and amend at that point to bring the pH up a little bit. One other option here, too, would be to create some raised beds to be able to immediately use those in the spring while continuing to work on the rest of the garden area. Um, This is what Julie, my garden consultation, opted for because her soil is like solid clay, and it's just going to make more sense to get moving in the spring with raised beds. I love raised planters because I have total control over the soil. There's less weed invasion. Um, It really is a really good way to just get a jump on starting your garden without having to do a whole lot to the soil. And in a subsequent email, which I haven't answered yet, but I promised Deanna I will answer you tonight, um, Deanna said that she thinks they'll be going with raised planter beds too. So I'll be giving her some guidance on how to proceed with those, along with some advice on some insect pests that she's got. So if you have a question that you'd like answered, feel free to reach out to me just like Deanna did. Leave me a voice message at the link in the show notes. Send me an email from the contact page at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com or send me a DM on Instagram or on Facebook. I will happily answer you directly, and then I may share that answer here on the podcast so we can all help each other. Okay, so let's talk about the basics of freezing. Like I mentioned, the good thing about freezing is that you don't have any special equipment that you need. Freezer bags or freezer containers, in addition to whatever it takes for you to be able to prep the veggies, really is all you need. Some people prefer to freeze in glass rather than plastic. That's personal preference. Some people like hard side containers. Other people prefer bags. It's entirely up to you. 
The one extra piece of equipment that I will say you might want to pick up once you get into this, especially if you're preserving large amounts of produce, is a food saver or other type of a vacuum sealer. I use a food saver. I'm actually on my second food saver, but you know I've been doing this for uh, 17 years or something like that. And we tend to freeze a lot depending on what it is. And I tend to store in the freezer for longer than a year due to fluctuations in the bounty of the harvest. So specifically, as an example, sweet corn. You know, we have a hard time growing sweet corn consistently. So a lot of the time we will have a really, really, really good year for sweet corn. And I will freeze a ton of it. And... That's going to last us for a couple of years. The vacuum sealed bags tend to, in my experience, avoid freezer burn better. So I have sweet corn from two seasons ago that is still perfectly fresh and tasty. And then we'll be using that up this winter. So um, fingers crossed for a good sweet corn year next year because we're just about out. You can also use those food saver or vacuum sealers as well for pulling the air out of specialty containers too. So if you prefer the hard-sided containers, there's also an attachment that works with that too. So other than that, there really is no special equipment required for freezing. And that is the good thing about it. So when do I freeze? The majority of my freezing either is in the instance of, like I said, like the sweet corn um, where we have a huge bounty and it's just the easiest way for me to go about doing it. Or it's when I've got a bunch of stuff coming on at once, but I am just not prepared to get all the canning equipment out and do a huge batch of something. Maybe I don't have enough to do a huge batch or I just need something that is going to get me done and over it really fast and back out into the garden. So a lot of the time my canning is done closer towards the fall. I'll dehydrate throughout the you know the entire season, but the freezing really is the quick down and dirty way to get it done. To start with freezing, all you need to do is prep your veggies by cleaning them really thoroughly and then cutting them to the appropriate size. Some of these are going to need to be prepped by blanching. And some of them, you know, you get, you blanch them before you start prepping them and others you do afterwards. So for instance, let's go back to that corn. If I'm freezing whole corn on the cob, I'm going to blanch it and then I'm going to freeze it. If I'm freezing it as off the cob, just the kernels, I am blanching that whole cob and then I am cutting it off the cob after it's already been blanched. Um, in a lot of other instances, you're going to be dicing or cutting it up and then blanching it. So it just depends on what it is that you're preparing. So let's talk about blanching. I learned the hard way years back that freezing changes the texture of certain raw veggies and not in a good way. There are, there are plenty of veggies that you can get away with not blanching as far as texture goes. Um, and there's some that really, really, really do need to be blanched in order to preserve that texture. But there are other reasons to blanch. Blanching preserves more than just the texture. It also preserves the quality of some of those vegetables. You might think that once something is in the freezer that it's good indefinitely, but that's really not true. Freezing only slows down those enzymatic processes that cause food to degenerate. And so it doesn't completely stop the process. It is possible for frozen vegetables to actually still spoil in the freezer if they haven't been prepped properly. And so blanching is how we prep them. What is blanching? 
Blanching is just scalding the veggies in either boiling water or steaming them to clean the surface free of dirt and organisms to stop the action of those enzymes that cause the loss of the flavor and the freshness and to help stop the loss of vitamins as the veggies age. So yes, frozen foods, or should, I should say frozen vegetables, are more nutritious than the canned ones. This is because the process of canning, either through water bath methods or through pressure canning, means that the vegetable is subjected to higher temperatures for a longer period of time than with freezing. So this removes more of the nutrients. Now, home canned stuff is likely still nutritionally superior to anything you get off the store shelves, and it has the benefit of being shelf-stable. So canned stuff certainly has its place, but freezing is still king when it comes to nutritional density. And actually, this is why I now steam blanch instead of boiling water blanching, which is what I did for years and years. Steamed vegetables actually lose fewer nutrients because there's no contact with the water. When you throw those veggies into the water and you get the agitation of the bubbles and the contact with the water, it causes the nutrients to leach out more quickly. But do whatever works best for you. And yes, there are special, you know, bowls and baskets and things that you can use to steam blanch your veggies. I think I have a, um, a it's not a steamer basket. It's actually just a colander, a wire mesh colander that I use to steam blanch. I haven't bought anything specific for this. So it's, you know, is it a nice to have thing that you can go and buy? Yes. Is it necessary? No. Now, there are a lot of online resources and books that will tell you which veggies absolutely need to be blanched and how to do it. The Ball Blue Book of Preserving, that has always been like my preserving Bible from day one. Um, University Extension websites. The Center for Home Food Preservation, their website has all of that information out there. I will link to all of these in the show notes. Be sure to follow those instructions based on the vegetable that you're preserving. Too much blanching can cause softer textures and can also cause a loss of flavor, but then too little blanching can actually kick those enzymes that you're trying to stop into high gear, and that would actually be worse than not blanching at all. Every veggie is different. For example, if you steam blanch asparagus or green beans, you're only going to do this for two to three minutes, but if you steam blanch broccoli, it's more like five minutes. And then the blanching time in water is different than steam. So that broccoli that you steam for five minutes, well, if you're boiling water blanching it, it's only going to be three minutes. So pay attention to these things. It is actually going to make a difference. But there are some vegetables that I just don't blanch, right? Like I will take whole tomatoes when I do not have time to can them up and I will throw them into a freezer bag, squeeze out as much air as possible and just throw them in the freezer. When I take them out later, I just run them underwater to remove the skin and then I process them accordingly. I do this with zucchini. I like to have zucchini in the middle of the winter, either to saute with my eggs or to throw into my smoothies. I don't blanch the zucchini. I just dice it up and I throw it in the freezer bag and I and I throw it into uh, into the freezer. It doesn't lose much texture that way. I've not seen a need to blanch peppers either. Your results may vary, so do what you think is best. Try it both ways and see how you prefer it. There's nothing worse than taking an entire batch of something and not 
blanching it and throwing it into the freezer and then realizing later on that you do not like the texture. So err on the side of caution, blanch what you can, and then if you want to try not blanching, just do one or two small bags of it just to try it out and see if it works for you. What I will say is do not microwave to blanch. This is going to cause some off flavors. It's going to dull the color and you can actually miss some of the enzymes that are necessary that you need to kill. So just don't do a microwave blanch. And you also don't need to blanch fruit. Um, it's not necessary for the berries or anything like that. And I don't blanch to slip the skins on things like peaches either. I just peel by hand or I slice and freeze with the skins on um, after making sure they're very cleaned. You can blanch them to slip those skins if that's going to be easier for you. Again, that is totally personal preference, but blanching the fruit isn't necessary to preserve it. I will say, though, that the enzymes that are in the fruits can cause them to turn brown and also lose a little bit of their vitamin C. So instead of blanching them, you can use ascorbic acid, which is essentially just vitamin C, and that's used to control the enzymes in the frozen food. You can get commercial mixtures of ascorbic acid um, at the store. I think Fruit Fresh is one of the brands that's by Ball. Mrs. Wages has one. You can also use citric acid or lemon juice. I do this a lot with um, like peaches. I'll put I'll dunk them into lemon water first before I freeze them. They may not necessarily be as effective as ascorbic acid, but I haven't seen a problem with it ever. There are also people who pack their fruit in sugar or sugar syrups before throwing them in the freezer. That's also going to control some um, some browning. Um, again, not as effectively as ascorbic acid, but it's fine. Either way, once your vegetables are blanched, you want to cool them really, really quickly in an ice water bath or under very cold running water. It needs to be below 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So swap that ice water out pretty quickly. It should take about the same amount of time to chill as it was to blanch. So if you're doing green beans and you're steaming them for three minutes, then toss them into the ice water for three minutes before you take them out and drain them and pat them dry. Now, there are two methods for packing these. You can do a dry pack or you can do a tray pack. So for a dry pack, basically you're just patting them dry, throwing the veggies into whatever freezer bag or container it is that you're using, squeezing as much air out of the pack as possible, securing it tightly, and then tossing it into the freezer. For tray pack, you actually want to take a sheet pan, a cookie sheet, lay out a piece of parchment paper, and then put the veggies in a single layer on that pan to freeze them. Then, once they're frozen solid, then you put them into your freezer containers and do the same thing. Take all the air out and make sure that they're labeled. Doing it this way actually keeps them from freezing into a solid block. <laughs> so you'll be able to take out only the portion that you want to take at a time if you want to put more than one serving into a container. I made this mistake with my zucchini. I did a huge batch of frozen zucchini and I literally threw it all into one freezer bag. It was one of my food saver bags and I vacuum sealed it closed and I threw it into the freezer. And come time to use it, I had nothing but a giant frozen zucchini blob. <laughs> Trying to get individual servings of zucchini out in order to be able to 
um, saute them or to throw them in my smoothies was an absolute nightmare. I had to like bang that thing against the counter in order to break off chunks of zucchini. And then I had to let it defrost a little bit even further before I could throw it into the pan. Now, I use my zucchini frozen in my smoothies. I use it in place of ice cubes. And it gives it a creamy texture uh, during the, the winter time without having to add any dairy. It's a, it's a really cool trick. But I also like to just throw it frozen into a pan and mix it with my scrambled eggs. Having to wait for them to defrost, well, that's not the whole idea, right? So now I do just about everything in a single layer on a sheet pan and put them in the freezer containers that way. So um, again, try what works best for you and go from there. And then you want to make sure once you get it into the container that you label it really well with what it is, maybe the portion size and the date, and then put it in the freezer. Now, what types of containers should you be using and what types should you not use? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So anything that you're putting into the freezer is going to need to be packed properly in order to protect the flavor and the color and the moisture content in addition to its nutritional value. So whatever you're using should have very specific characteristics to it. You want it to be moisture and vapor resistant. You want it to be very durable and leak proof. You do not want it to be susceptible to becoming brittle or cracking at low temperatures. It needs to be able to protect the food from absorbing other flavors or odors that are going on in your freezer. It should be easy to seal and it should be easy to label. So suitable packing materials, things like rigid plastic containers that have straight sides to them, glass jars that are made for freezing and canning. Just make sure when you are freezing anything that is remotely liquid that you leave space at the top of that glass jar for expansion. You do not want these exploding in your freezer. Moisture vapor resistant bags that are labeled as freezer bags, not your regular sandwich bags. Um, the vacuum sealer bags and the containers that go with those and freezer paper. These are all good things that you can freeze in. Again, the less air, the better. You do not want to use containers that are specifically intended for like short-term storage. Things like plastic bread bags or cottage cheese or yogurt containers. No ice cream cartons. And don't use waxed paper either. These do not provide effective protection against flavor and moisture loss. And you're likely going to end up with freezer burn if you're doing any type of long-term storage. These things might be okay if you're only freezing and storing for a month or two. Anything over than that, you really want something that is designed for the freezer. And speaking of that freezer, let's talk about the freezer conditions for a minute, right? In order for your frozen goods to stay at their best quality, you want your freezer to be at zero degrees Fahrenheit or negative 17.7 Celsius or colder. The only way to make sure that your freezer is at the right temperature is to use a freezer thermometer. Yes, there are a lot of modern 
fridges and freezers that have digital displays that show that your freezer is at a specific temperature. And that might be pretty close, but I would hedge my bets and just buy a cheap freezer thermometer to keep in there just so that you're sure because those digital displays may not always be accurate. Storing at temperatures higher than this zero degrees is going to increase the rate of deterioration. So it can affect the flavor and the texture and it's gonna shorten your storage life. So if possible, have a designated freezer for your long-term storage. Keep the ice cream in the freezer that's attached to your fridge and anything else that you're gonna get on a regular basis, but keep your stuff for preserving in a standalone freezer. Why? Every time you're opening that freezer door, it's fluctuating those freezer temperatures. And this can cause the ice that is in your frozen fruits and vegetables to thaw ever so slightly and then refreeze. So every time this happens, those smaller little ice crystals form larger and larger and larger ones. And so that is going to further damage the cells in the vegetable and the fruit, and it's going to create a mushier texture. This is also how you avoid freezer burn. So what is freezer burn? It's the ice crystals that are evaporating from the surface of the fruits or vegetables is what causes freezer burn. And of course, if you've ever had freezer burn food of any kind, you know that it can get like off flavors and it can have a really weird texture. So this is why packaging in the proper containers, heavyweight, moisture resistant, is going to help prevent the freezer burn. So refer back to those containers that I mentioned. Now, what can be frozen and what maybe shouldn't be? Most fruits can be frozen. Now, how you use them may vary based on the thawed texture. One example is like dragon fruit. If you want to freeze dragon fruit, you can, but in its whole form, it tends to be mushy once it's defrosted. So if you're freezing dragon fruit, you may want to puree it first. So think about how you're going to use that fruit and then look at what the texture is when it's defrosted and figure out how to freeze it. Vegetables, they're pretty much limitless. Asparagus, green beans, broccoli, and all of its other brassica cousins, beets, carrots, corn, eggplant, all of your herbs, all types of greens, mushrooms, okra, peas, all the types, snow peas, shelled peas, sugar snap peas, all of them, um, peppers, potatoes, all of the different squashes, both your summer squashes and your winter types, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, turnips, all of them can be frozen. What you don't freeze is basically going to be up to your personal preference. I prefer to pickle my beets. I don't want to freeze them. Um, we love stewed tomatoes, right? So that's what we usually can is tomatoes. But I might freeze tomatoes in the middle of the season to process them later on because I don't have time. Um, we don't like frozen green beans. For some reason, the texture of us is just not enjoyable. We prefer our green beans to be canned. And we don't enjoy greens frozen. As a matter of fact, we don't enjoy greens canned or any other way, maybe dehydrated as a powder. So, I mean, if it's not fresh greens, we're not eating them. So again, what you do and do not freeze is going to be up to your personal preference. So the upside to freezing, Super easy, super inexpensive, can be done very quickly, and you can do it in small batches. The downside, well, obviously, frozen foods are not shelf-stable. So if you have worries about having power outages, that might be something that you think about. 
You also may only have limited space in your freezer or you might need an extra freezer if you're freezing a lot of stuff. And of course that consumes energy. So do a mixture. You know, we're, we're just getting started with freezing this week, but then part two next week, we're going to talk about water bath canning. My first jump into shelf-stable food preservation, and it's still my favorite, was water bath canning, and second only to pressure canning that I have moved into. Do a mixture of these types of things. We're also going to talk about dehydrating in a couple of episodes. All of these different things combined are going to work together to help you preserve your harvest for longer. And of course, you know I'm always saying it, there is power in food. The less that you have to rely on leaving home to go and get food, the better off you'll be. So if you find these episodes helpful, share them with a friend, please, like Chris did with Deanna. And if you want more garden gold in your inbox periodically, head over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. And you can also take a look at a few of the articles that I've written over there. As the season moves forward towards fall, I'll have more time to add um, articles and, and different things going on over at the website. So let me know if there are any topics that you want me to cover, either in an article or in a PDF or on podcast. I will happily, happily cover it. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and I'll talk to you again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. Frozen foods will stay good and more. Let's dig in. I'm not talking about how long the frozen foods will stay good, so let's try that again. <laughs> so I will uh, listen to, or I will listen to. Oi, boy, I'm on a roll today, aren't I? Okay, so let's talk about the basics of freezing. Okay, are you done making your noise over there? That's not the cat, it's the dog. Too much blancing. Blancing? We're not dancing, we're blanching. Hmm. Befur to f- befur. No. If you get lots of great information from this podcast and would like to support it monetarily, you can do that by becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month over on Patreon. I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting this and every episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. And if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething. The link is in the show notes.